0: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Two really good conversations this week. I think you're going to enjoy this. First off, Ken Rosenthal, the senior baseball writer for The Athletic, as well as an in-studio reporter for MLB Network and a contributor to Fox's MLB Telecast, and Jason Stark, senior baseball writer for The Athletic and a MLB Network studio analyst. We are going to discuss the process of baseball reporting, baseball writing. We'll also get into... um, Jason Stark being laid off by ESPN and Ken Rosenthal having to find uh, a place to write when Fox Sports uh, decided to go all video on their website. That was a really terrific conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. We finish up with Tim Layden, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. He wrote the memoir for Sports Illustrated on Bill Knack. And we have a 30 minute conversation or so about what made Knack great, some of Bill Knack's greatest stories. And Tim Layden, on the future of Sports Illustrated. All right, and as promised at the top, we bring on Ken Rosenthal and Jason Stark. Very excited to have uh, the two pillars of the athletic with me on the Sports Media Podcast. Jason and Ken, welcome.
1: Thank you, Richard. Always wanted to be a pillar. Pretty excited about that.
0: <laughs> Took you a long time, Jason, but you finally have Did. made it. <laughs> uh, and I appreciate, as I said, slumming on this podcast. You guys are very nice to do that. Um all right, first off, what's really interesting about your careers, and there are many things interesting, but one of the things for the purposes of this podcast, and I think um, there's a lot of young people who listen, and there's a lot of young people who eventually want to be in, um, have a multimedia career. You both have worked in television as well as digital and print. And so here's where I want to start with, and Ken, I'll start with you. I want to break it down in terms of what skill sets you need for television that you've found and what skill sets you need for digital print. And this is specific to baseball writing and reporting. So start with you, Ken, then I'll go to Jason. Ken, what skill set do you need, in your opinion, to excel in television when it comes to the reporting of baseball, the commentary of baseball?
2: Knowledge would be number one. You have to know what you're talking about. (laughs) And if you don't know what you're talking about, you're going to look really stupid. So that's number one. Now, as far as the actual mechanics of it, I can only speak for myself, I had to learn how to talk slower and just be kind of calmer than I might be in my normal daily conversation. And it took me a long time, and it was a difficult transition. So that part of it was something I definitely had to learn, I have to be conscious of to this day. But overall, as far as the skill set and being on TV, it's mostly you know what we do. And I hope Jason would agree, I think he would. It's just the conversations we have amongst ourselves, but they happen to be on camera. And that's the best of us when, when it's
1: like that. And to me, that's how it's supposed to be.
0: Same question, Jason.
1: Well, I, you know, I think that my biggest challenge was learning to be succinct. Uh, if, if you guys have read me, I know you have, uh, you know that when I write, I often write many words, (laughs) right? Uh, And on television, you don't have the the time to spew out many words. You have to get to your point, make it, reinforce it, and get out. And that was that was really a difficult skill for me to learn. Um, You know, when you write, you have breathing room. When you're even, even on the radio or on a podcast, you have breathing room. In TV. you you, you're moving along to that next thing so fast that you don't have that breathing room and it it's challenging if if you until you get your mind to think that way so (laughs) i I know ken said it took him a while took me a really long while i felt like to get there so um i'm at the point now where i love tv and i i the coolest thing about the modern media world is you get to tell the stories so many different ways. And we're living that.
0: Ken, what, um, what is a baseball writer in no matter what, uh, her form or his form, no matter what medium they're in, what does a baseball writer in 2018 need to do, need to have in order to be successful?
2: Wow. (laughs) There are a lot of things. I would say the first thing, would be an ability to report because even for the best writers and heck, we're talking about Bill Knack, right? Bill Knack just passed away and he spoke at length about the importance of reporting in his work. And he was maybe the most brilliant sports writer ever in the pure writing sense. So it always starts there with me. And by reporting, I don't mean 140 characters on Twitter. I mean, being able to report a story, talk to people, gain their trust, gain insight into any angle that you might be pursuing. You also have to have the ability, yes, to put words together to be able to write coherently and all of that. That's a given. And you also have to be able to work hard because in this day and age, as Jason was saying, there are all these different mediums available to all of us the ones who are lucky enough to do it. And you have to be able to manage it and be able to shift between those and keep working to stay on top of everything. That is one of the biggest challenges I face is just kind of knowing what's going on at all times with all teams. And I don't know it as well as some people following each individual team, but I have to have a working knowledge and then I can go from there.
0: Same thing, Jason.
1: Well, I I think Ken touched on this. It takes an incredible work ethic. Um, Baseball is the longest season. It's the most grueling season uh, there's just no downtime. There's n- n- not enough off days uh, un- unless it snows every day in April. Um, you, you know you're you're up in the morning and there's a million things to do. <laughs> you're at the park at two or three in the afternoon and you don't leave there till midnight or one in the morning, and it, it is grueling. So it it takes that first off that uh, that mental and physical strength. To, to just get through the year and, and, and have as much excitement about every day you spend at the ballpark as you had the day before. That is hard. It's hard for players. It's really hard for baseball writers. Um, the other thing is because baseball is every day, you're going to be around, if you cover a team, you're going to be around the same people day after day after day for seven, eight, nine months if your team goes to the postseason. And so it takes an ability to connect with a wide range of people in a a bunch of different ways. And I I, I use this expression all the time. You need a lot of gears on the transmission. You, You need to have the ability to get serious and get tough and ask tough questions. And yet you need to have the ability to... Take your foot off that gas, and and be light and be conversational, and uh, have the ability to work a clubhouse and just talk to people and get to know people, and get to know background on the people you cover and the team you cover, and all that is before you write a word, and you're going probably going to write more words than any other employee, right, of your news organization. Um, so you have to be incredibly productive. It's. It is the most demanding beat there is. And, you know, I, I, I have so much appreciation for the people who cover teams in this day and age and have to blog and tweet and write all day and all night long and go on the radio and go on TV. It's incredible. Um, like what Ken and I do is almost easy compared to that. That's true. That's very true.
0: Got some uh, process questions out of the way. Now I want to get to some subject-related questions. Ken, um, and I know this list will be long, so you'll have to sort of give us an abridged list, but who are the interesting people to talk to in the game right now, and why?
2: It is a long list, and I will start with Max Scherzer. I I believe he is one of the most intelligent players that there is, and he is just a unique guy. He's a great pitcher, of course, we all know that, but I just find him to be a a deeper subject than most. And that's not a knock on anybody. It's just he has a little bit more depth to him. Now, obviously, we can go to the front office, and virtually all of the GMs are fascinating in one way or another. Theo Epstein, of course, is endlessly interesting because of what he has accomplished. Brian Cashman, the same. Now, you go to the manager level, I think Jason would agree with this, Joe Madden is, far and above the most interesting manager to talk to. He has thoughts not just on baseball, but on lots of things. And it's always interesting to spend time with him.
3: And when I'm looking at some other players,
2: it's kind of hard to distinguish between them. There are a number of players that I enjoy talking with and I find really interesting. One guy I do not talk with now because he doesn't speak English yet is Otani. I would say he's probably the most interesting guy in the entire
0: (laughs) sport. Yeah.
3: So,
2: I would start with that list. You're hitting me cold, so I can't
1: give you a full list. But that group would be my starting five, I guess you call it.
0: It's a pretty good list. Uh, same thing, Jason.
1: It's a really good list. Well, um, you know, as you know, I'm uh, hosting this show on s- Stadium now called Baseball Stories, and so I actually almost had to come up with a list like this because I, you know, I had to pick out people in the sport who I would like to spend an entire half-hour show talking to. And so I you know, I was looking for a lot of the qualities that, that Kenny described. Um, intelligence, passion, depth, humor. And so, I mean, you can tell from my guest list the kind of people that I gravitated toward. Um, Max Scherz is on the list. Justin Verlander is on that list. Terry Francona um, is a, a guy I've known for a long time who has incredible depth to him as a manager buck show on the list uh joe madden had agreed to do it but we couldn't get our schedules to line up so maybe next time but you know if you're if you've got names of, of guys like that um on your people i'd love to spend a half hour with list you're, you're going to have a good day um let me throw one more in there adam jones <laughs> from from the orioles is a guy with so many levels to him. Um, and uh, you know, Adam's a guy you can talk to about wrestling or about race in America and everything in between. So I, I, I think the game right now is filled with fascinating people to talk to. and We're lucky that it is.
0: Ken, how do you cultivate sources? One of the things I think that you have made your bones in in this business is the ability to report breaking news, And it's really the ability to get information from either people or from organizations. That's all source building and source relationships. So um, without giving away, obviously, who your sources are, an overview question. How do you cultivate your sources?
2: Well, Richard, I'm not going to give away even those secrets. No, just (laughs) kidding. It's something that happens over time. And when you first start out, you can't simply call up the general manager of team X and say, Hey, what about this? Because it doesn't work like that. You have to have some kind of relationship built with a person, whether it's general manager, owner, player, scout, agent, name it, before you have the ability to really have an understanding with that person about what we can talk about with regards to reporting. Right? So, I know young people will come in and some of them will be very aggressive and they'll blanket an organization and say, and just email everybody. Hey, can you tell me this? Can you tell me that? No, it's not going to work like that. So it does take time. And if you're covering a team, if you're a beat person, and like Jason said, you're around all the time, you get to know these people and hopefully at some point you build a trust. And in our roles, it's the same thing. We will beat guys early in our careers as well. And it kind of starts there. Now, The difficulty is maintaining sources when at times you have to write things that sources, your sources might find unpleasant. And the way that happens, and it doesn't always happen. I lose people for periods of time, sometimes forever. But my feeling is if you are fair, if you give everyone their say, and if you have an understanding of what everyone's position is, then at some point, you hopefully gain enough respect where you're not going to blow up a relationship with something negative. That is a high wire act that reporters face in every walk of life and every particular area you might cover. And it's not easy. It's not easy in baseball. It's not easy in politics, entertainment, whatever the situation might be, but it does take time. And it also, as Jason said earlier, it can't always be going hundred miles an hour with people you can't just be hard-edged all the time you have to have a give and take and sometimes with sources they want information from you well you have to understand that without compromising yourself you've got to play that game a little bit because it can't be a one-way relationship so all of that goes into it and i guess that would be the way i would describe it generally then there are individual cases where sources come out of nowhere that People would be shocked if I told them where I was getting information, and that hopefully one day when i 'm ninety five years old will be in a book of mine <laughs> <laughs> hey,
1: can, can I jump in here and talk course, about this is. for a second yeah. um, you know I, there's a story I like to tell this is a, a a few years back we were approaching the trading deadline, and you know it 's one of those deals where I go up in my office and I end up <laughs> up there all day long and I'm texting and I'm emailing and I'm talking on the phone and I'm writing. And now it's getting to be seven o'clock in the East. The games are starting. You're not gonna be able to talk to anybody now. So I go downstairs and I plop on my couch and I'm watching baseball and my daughter sits down next to me. And, um, now it's maybe about like, 10 o'clock, a little before 10, the games are starting to end, and suddenly my cell phone rings. And it's a, a guy who's a, a just a really good source of mine, and he starts to tell me about a three-way deal that a team is trying to put together because they need to move this guy in order to make room for that guy. And so they called us. They're trying to find a a third team, blah, 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 blah. And so we we went up talking for about 10 minutes, and I hang up, and my daughter's listening to this whole thing. And she looks at me, and she asks the defining question, which is, Dad, why do people tell you stuff? And it's really an amazing thing to think about. But here's what I told her. What we do every day of every year is build relationships and build trust and you know this is a a, a guy I build a relationship with over a period of years um, just talking about all kinds of stuff and we reached a point where when he tells me something I, I know it's true and I have complete confidence in him telling me the truth Meanwhile, he has complete confidence that I am going to present this information accurately, as he described it. I am not going to burn him or compromise him. And, you know, I'm probably going to go off and find something else about this that will help him and his team. And this is really what we do. We just on, just keep on building relationships day after day in this job. And it's really one of the most enjoyable parts of it, but also one of the most challenging.
0: Jason, before um, I um, had you and Ken on, I talked to your editor at The Athletic, Emma Spam, who used to work with me. And one of the things she said was that, you know, I'm pretty good with fan graphs and playing decks and stats in general, but I honestly have no idea why Jason Stark turns up all the stuff <laughs> that he... Um, <laughs> He has in his column. Don't which, tell him, Jason. Yeah, which is a nice, uh, a nice compliment. Um, <laughs> but you, when you read your stuff, um, and I'm not the most, um, I appreciate it. But I, you know, I'm no sabermetrician, but I can respect and appreciate just the level of numerical detail that you go into with your baseball work. Um, where does this come from? Did you? Is there, as a kid, did you just love numbers? Is it your passion for baseball? But you are a unique writer, Jason, in the sense that um, you're able to turn numerical things into, inter- in my opinion, into interesting prose.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it, this is a really, uh, this is a, it's a hard question to answer because how I got this way is something I wonder too. <laughs> you know, I, I, every day, I, and I mean every day, somebody will tweet at me or text me. Or come up to me in a press box and say, "Here's something only you would know," or "Here's something you would appreciate." Or Cliff Lee pitches against Dylan G, and somebody wants to know the last time two guys pitched against each other when their names are that short and they rhymed. And for whatever reason, I've become that guy, right? And it's it's a fun niche to have because I, you know, I love baseball. I love covering baseball. I love writing about baseball. And I love the detective work. I, for, for whatever reason, you know, as I watch baseball every night uh, or read about it or talk to people about it, my mind's always wondering, right, well, how rare is this? My, I, I mentioned this in a com I wrote last week, but my mom always told me I should write a book and call it, I never saw that before, because that's what I'm constantly... Asking, um, and that it just becomes kind of a quest to answer those kinds of questions. I, I, you know, I'm not one of those people, Richard, who thinks that the numbers are the game. Um, you know, I think we live in a world now where there are people who are so deeply immersed in every number they can find on fan graphs or baseball reference or whatever, that they forget that people actually play the games. I'm not that guy, but I do think that numbers can illuminate the game in a really important way. And so, you know, I'm constantly looking for ways to use the numbers to tell stories. Um, and so if Shohei Otani has a week where he hits three home runs as a hitter and wins two games as a pitcher. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm going to try to figure out not just how rare that is because nobody does that, but all right who, who is who's even had a month like that? You know so i'll I'll just get started and get to the point where hopefully, with all the incredible tools we have available to us now, I can find answers to those questions. But when I can't, I have people I can turn to, and I've also been known to just turn to Twitter, throw something out there, say, I can't figure this out myself, and see if people can help. And it's amazing the resources that social media can present us in this day and age. When I had last year, I was trying to find something. I ran out of ways for me to research it. Within 15 minutes, I had four people out there writing computer programs to help me find the answer. <laughs> it was so much fun. Hmm. So that's, that's the story of me and my brain. Now I need some help. Could you, guys, could you guys refer me to somebody who could help me?
0: Yeah, I'm the son of a shrink, so I'll give you a discount basically. If Good. You, I'll forward that to you. Um, Ken, you're, I think you're a really perfect guy to ask this question. When you look into the future in terms of baseball writing, and again, no matter what medium it's in, whether it's at a place like The Athletic, whether it's at a traditional newspaper, you know, whether it's on something that hasn't even been created yet, do you think we're going to continue to see the features that we saw from the Roger Angels that we see today from people like Tom Berducci, will we see... Far more sabermetrically inclined pieces that we certainly see from a lot of places like fan graphs, will we see the kind of reporting that we see on the athletic, which is sort of reported analysis every day for some really from some really incredible baseball reporters. Will we see a combination of all this? If you had to guess thirty years from now, what do you think what kind of baseball writing will the average baseball consumer get, and why? <laughs>
2: Richard, the 30 years is what's throwing me here, because if you would have said 30 years ago, what would it look like? There was no Internet. There was no Twitter. There was virtually no baseball writers on TV. I don't even know if Peter Gammons was on TV then, Jason. Time in here. He was not, right? It was before that. All right, let's see,
1: 1988? All right. Hmm. So I'm going to say, so, uh... say he was. But, but okay. it was just well, it was the just beginning started. stages of it. Yep. Yeah.
2: Okay, so 30 years from now, who the heck knows? I will say this. I hope, it is my fondest hope, that there is always a Tom Verducci and a Roger Angel and that kind of literary writing. And Tom writes in nine different kinds of ways. He's the best at all of them. But I would hope there's always a place for that. And I think that there will. And one of the things that has been so encouraging to me about The Athletic Is that while none of us, in my estimation, is at that level, when we write the stories along those lines, the deeper stories, not necessarily sabermetric stories, but people stories, they get a good response. And that's been so encouraging at a time when a lot of us have been told nobody reads anymore, which is a bunch of baloney. It's just not true. So, number one, I hope there will always be a place, and I expect that there will, for that kind of writing. The sabermetric oriented writing, we've definitely seen that explode in the last five years, and it's not going anywhere. And the way that sabermetricians can analyze and dig deep and get right to the core of what might be going on with a player or a team, it's incredible. And you see how important it is because a lot of these writers are now working for teams and bringing their ideas to different clubs. Now, that said, The reason to me, and I'm not just blowing smoke here, why Jason is so special is that while he writes about numbers, he writes in such an entertaining way that any fan could enjoy it. Now, Jason's not a pure sabermetric writer, but he does write a lot about numbers, and yet it's presented in such a way that it makes you laugh, it makes you think, all of these things, where, in my view, a lot of the articles now that are very deep into the sabermetrics are kind of dry. That's just me, and it's not a universal opinion. It's not even necessarily the right or wrong opinion. But there has to be always a place for the written word to entertain, to make you think. That, to me, is the goal, always, to make you think. So I do believe it's all going to be there, and I do believe websites are going to exist, and newspapers in some form will exist. But 30 years from now, (laughs) where we're reading it, how we're reading it, if we've got some chip in our brain getting...
1: Things downloaded into
0: (laughs) (laughs) us. Jason, you want to uh, tackle that? You feel free. Yeah,
1: you know, I have to admit, I'm, I'm worried. I, I really am. Um, I, I know Ken just said that newspapers are going to exist in some form in 30 years. In what form? In what cities? Is there going to be a newspaper in every town? Who's, you know. I I do think that people will be writing about baseball and writing about sports and writing about all kinds of stuff in 30 years, but where? Um, And how is it going to work? Are people going to be willing to pay for it? It's One of the exciting things about The Athletic is that, you know, I've worked at ESPN, and I used to link to pieces on ESPN Insider that, you know, guys like Buster Allen would write, and the the blowback I would get from people on Twitter was, I would never pay for blah, 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 and there was just an incredible stream of that. All right, now I work for The Athletic, you have to subscribe, but people are not just subscribing, there's almost none of that backlash. I almost get the sense that, you know, the people who are subscribing to The Athletic and reading this great work, realize they're like the coolest kids in school. They're they're the members of a really cool club, and not everybody knows about it. But they're so thrilled to be in it. And you know, I hope that's a portent of what's to come. I hope that um, not just that the athletic is a raging success, but it makes people realize that in order to get great writing and great information, we're going to have to pay for it. Hopefully, it's just a modest amount, but as long as that happens, I'm totally in agreement with Ken. Uh, there's always there are always going to be people who are looking for unique content, unique information, and great writing, and want to read it. I I just hope that the rest of the 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 media world doesn't think that the only solution is to make sure that all written pieces about baseball have to be about the length of a Twitter post.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and we could, you know, we could could do five hours on where newspapers may or may not be heading forward. I want to ask you both an individual question about your specific careers. I'll start with you, Jason. Um, And I'll just be blunt. How much of a shock was the ESPN layoff, especially given um, your reputation in the business? Given the workload that you had at ESPN, and given your reputation, um, how much was a sh- how much was that a shock when you were informed?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, shock's a good word. I I certainly didn't see it coming, and uh, I can't say that I understand it to this day. But it you know was an incredible experience to go through, and you know one that you know once the shock wore off. Um, And I've heard other people on your podcasts describe this, but it it was an incredibly uplifting experience other than the part where I lost my job (laughs) because so many people reached out to me to tell me how uh, I didn't deserve this, how shocked and angered they were, uh how great I was at my job, how reading me had changed their lives, or how reading me had inspired them, or just a million different variations of that, and all the people in baseball who contacted me uh you know i my wife told me to keep a list, and once I got past a hundred, I kind of lost track, but it was just it blew me away the people who tracked me down and reassured me that everything would be fine. And once I realized that everything was going to be fine, I thought, you know what, I'm, going to, I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to look backward. I'm not going to try to figure out why I was on that list. I'm just going to look at this as an opportunity to find something great to do next. And I'm lucky because that actually happened. Uh, I did find that thing, and it's awesome.
0: Uh, Jason, one follow-up, and if you're not comfortable answering this, I totally understand it, but were you ever given a reason? Were you ever told the simple, here's why we did this?
1: You know, uh, I don't think, I I, I can't say I wasn't given a reason, um, but basically what I was given was a very generic reason that I'm assuming almost everyone on that list was given, and you know, when I tried to ask some questions, um, I really didn't get any answers, and so I, I I just decided that it was wasted energy. I know that not everybody who got laid off when I did felt that way, and they were calling everybody in the building, trying to figure it out, and you know I just couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't change it. Um, so many people told me that I didn't deserve it, including I, I can't even tell you how many people that I worked with there. It felt like I heard from any everyone that I ever worked with at ESPN, uh, assuring me that of all the people who got let go, you know, I was on that short list of people who were the most valuable to the to the to what ESPN was and they just couldn't fathom that i got let go and so did the reason really matter in the end i decided it didn't
0: i appreciate your answer that um ken one for you and obviously it's a different situation but i did want to ask you uh sort of how it felt when foxsports.com where you had been writing decided to um decided to go all video they basically laid off a ton of writers and editors, and they decided to make their website, which is still to this day essentially a marketing tool for their daytime programming. And I understand you work for Fox, so you have to be a little diplomatic here. But um, what was that like for you, just for that time when you you no longer had a writing home, and you're someone who had written for a long time, and notably for the Boston, uh, for the Baltimore Sun, um, and you were, I think, a writer at heart, even though you had a Um, this television experience, but were you worried at all that you weren't going to find a home? I know you started to write a little bit on Facebook, but what was that like for a guy who's written for decades, all of a sudden having nothing to do with anything that you did, the place that you're writing at essentially does this massive shift um, and eliminates prose? Well, it was weird, (laughs) I'm
2: not going to lie, and the one thing about Fox that I've learned, and I've been there since... August 05, is that change happens quickly, and there is often change. So I had an inkling that they had a preference for video, that Jamie Horowitz would come in. He had told me, to start thinking about more video. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll do that, and I'll still write. And I understood that. I knew that they were going to increase the emphasis on video. I never thought that they were going to eliminate writing entirely. And maybe it was too naive of me to think that way. But the night I heard, I'll never forget this. I was doing a game for MLB Network in Washington. I believe it was Washington and the Cubs. And I got a call from my editor at FoxSports.com. And he said, hey, man, I don't know what you're thinking about for tomorrow, but you've got no place to go right now. There's no place to write. We have functionally no way to post a story. It was shocking. And I'm in the middle of a broadcast while we're doing this. And I was floored, to say the least. I was, and I was totally put out of sorts. Now, after that happens, what do you do? You try to figure out if, if things will ever change and go back at Fox. And it quickly became clear to me that it was not going to change. And even though Jamie Horowitz had his situation where he had to leave, it has not changed. That said, and Jason expressed this really well with his own situation at ESPN, it actually became a positive. And I had some positive experiences come out of it with Fox. And I will say this. John Entz, who is one of the main people there, uh, I went to him immediately. I said, John, I have to write. You don't understand. Actually, he does understand. But I said, you don't understand. This is what I do. The rest of it is just all flowing off the writing. It doesn't – I couldn't just do TV alone. It wouldn't be enough for me, not even close to enough. So I want to go somewhere else to write. Now, keep in mind, I'm still under contract with them, I believe, was through the end of the year. And he said, you know what, go ahead, you go find a place if if you want to do that. And they didn't have to do that. You remember, and I don't want to rip ESPN, but I'm going to say it, they kept Jason Stark on the sidelines effectively for like – forever. Right. And it was ridiculous. So they were good enough to let me do that. Now I had a, an interim period where I was looking for a new job and I was dying. <laughs> I mean, in a <laughs> figurative sense because the trade deadline was coming up and I had nowhere to go. That's why I started writing on Facebook. And I just <clears> felt, <throat> you know what, this is what I do. I'm going to do it. And of course, Facebook's not paying me, but I don't care. It doesn't matter. So I did that for a while. And all the while, that was going on. I was, of course, looking for other opportunities. And the true blessing, outside of the way Fox handled it with me, which I thought was incredibly professional and classy after the fact, was that I got to a place that I couldn't have dreamed it up initially. And that's the best part that the athletic is a kind of a writer's dream, it's what we all want to do be in a place that values good writing, be able to write as well as we possibly can. And that all came to pass. And when I joined The Athletic, it wasn't what it is now. It was kind of still startup phase. And it was getting bigger. Seth Davis was already aboard. Stuart Mandel was already aboard. They were building the college basketball and football sites, adding cities. But I never imagined within six months we'd hire all of these individual writers and to cover different teams, or that we'd hire Jason, though we were talking to Jason and about Jason at the time. And I was really excited about that idea. So in the end, and I try to emphasize this to my kids who are all in their 20s now, stuff does happen. Stuff happens to even people maybe you think it would never happen to. But sometimes it gets you to a better place, or at least a different place that you can be totally comfortable with. And I think in both of our experiences, that's a parallel. And if I could say one thing to young people out there, it's that nothing is the end of the world. It just isn't.
1: You know, Richard, it's, it's funny. I, or I, I lost my job at the, in the last week of April. Ken, what was the, what was the Fox decision that was, what, June, was, end, toward the end of June?
2: No, I think it was the end of May, Jason, because I started writing so, again. Uh, maybe it was the end of June. I can't
1: even remember. Uh, uh, all right. So, so it was only a few weeks <laughs> later, right? So, yeah. I, 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 so Ken posts on Twitter that he's no longer got a place to write. And people started tweeting at the two of us immediately, <laughs> saying something to the effect of you guys should start your own yep. site, and we we would subscribe to it. So actually, I, I think I called Ken up and said, "What do you send, What do you say we send these people some invoices and see what happens?" <laughs> we
2: could have that conversation.
1: <laughs> yeah, obviously that that never happened, but um, luckily the Athletic saved us from probably from going down that road. And um, I, I, I for one, couldn't be more grateful to, uh, to be working with Ken, but to be working well, for I, such I, a great writer driven place. I've,
2: and I've written this too, Richard, in one of the articles about the Athletic that if Jason and I started something like that, right, an individual website, subscription site, you've seen that happen with certain sports writers. This is what we would want to build. This is it to the letter. So somebody built it for us, that makes it a heck of a lot easier. And (laughs) we're both ecstatic to be where we are.
0: All right, a couple more here, and I appreciate your time. I'm going to ask Jason, I'm going to ask you this, Jason, because it it would, um, Ken can't really answer this because it sort of puts him in a, Impossible spot to answer. But um, when Ken Rosenthal um, announced he was joining the Athletic in August of 2017, it felt for me, for the Athletic, that was a game changing moment. Um, They obviously had had hired talent before, including some of my longtime colleagues, Stuart Mandel, Seth Davis, my old boss at Sports Illustrated, Paul Fichtenbaum had been there. But that, I think, and again, it's just my interpretation as someone who writes about media was a was a signal to the marketplace that this place was going to invest in really high-end talent and build things around high-end, respected talent. And I'm wondering just for you, when you saw that Ken had done that outside of your long-time relationship with him, did that change your impression of what the athletic might be when they brought Ken in to essentially lead, at least or be the face of a vertical?
1: Well, that was a really important moment. Um, you know, I was, I was a guy at that point. Um, I had a, I had a basically a one year non-compete clause at ESPN. And so I was weighing, what am I going to do next? Uh, I had a ton of interest, uh, including the athletic, you know, I, I had talked to them even before Ken's thing came about, but I, you know, I didn't know what they were going to be or how big a presence they were going to be, not just in terms of their, their coverage of sports, but their serious commitment to covering baseball. And, you know, when Ken Rosenthal decides he's going to write for this place, Uh, that answers every one of those questions. And I think a lot of what you've seen since stems from that moment. Um, All of these great writers who have left their previous jobs and gone to the athletic to cover baseball felt so much more secure about it because Ken Rosenthal did that. You know, and um, I'm one of them. Uh, It was by the time I got on board – something amazing was happening, but it started with that.
0: All right. Ken, did you want to add anything to that? Or will you let Jason's, uh, um, incredible, uh, PR you suffice?
2: (laughs) Jason is too kind. (laughs) The only thing I will say, Richard, and this is important in my view, because yes, I know how people perceive it when I left to go there. Well, not left when I joined the athletic, I was nowhere, so I couldn't leave anywhere. But, I had the security of working on television at that time. I'm working for MLB Network. I'm working for Fox. I could take a chance. And those people who might say, oh, wow, that was really gutty of you to do this. No, 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 no. I had security. I had more security than a lot of people who followed and joined us and took a bigger risk. So I was fortunate to be in that position. At the same time, I also... I'm at a point or was at a point where I was kind of eager to be a part of something like this. And if I could be a part of something that was going to help bring back sports writing, well, sign me up. And also I remember I have a son who's 26 and he's very tech savvy. And he was telling me the whole time, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. This is the future. And he's pretty smart guy, my son. And Everything he said at the time has sort of come true. So it wasn't really a risk in my view. It was kind of the only decision. And I had other interests, but it wasn't – there was nothing else that appealed to me anywhere close to this. So it was just sort of the right place at the right time, and I was lucky enough, as it turned out, didn't anticipate it this way, but I was lucky enough to be there.
0: Hmm. And I'll say total transparency – I don't know Ken Rosenthal very well. We've certainly interacted over email, and a couple podcasts, but he was somebody, before I made my decision, I reached out to, was incredibly generous with his time, and was honest about the athletic, and it was a big factor. It it it, it definitely pushed me towards that place when a guy like Ken Rosenthal was saying what he was saying, was saying that he believed in in the product. I'm um, well, glad
2: you came, Richard. Well, we'll yeah, see. I've
0: I'm, I'm only been here for a couple of weeks. I, 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 could, I, could bring, I could bring the whole thing down. Let's not go crazy. <laughs> um, lastly, um, and this is just a fun one for you guys. Um, if I could let you two pick a three-game series this year to cover, I'll let you put the two teams together, and you can do whatever kind of stories you want. I'll start with you, Jason. What would be the two teams currently in Major League Baseball you would choose to watch this three-game series, and why?
1: Okay. Um, So, I mean, the first thing that I I would dial up is I'd want two really interesting, thoughtful, quotable managers. And I would need... I mean, you'd obviously want as many must-see players on those teams as you could get. So, I, I, boy, this is really hard. I would say Cubs, <laughs> <That's> terrible <laughs> Cubs in the National League, but the American League. Wow, I mean, the Astros are so much fun to be around, and uh, and AJ Hinch is just. Uh, just one of those guys who every time you ask them a question, you get something back that you don't expect. So that would be a great nomination. But I, I you know, I think I would go Indians. Uh, every day somebody's going to go out to pitch, uh, who's must watch. Every and there's just so many up and coming star players around the diamond, uh, and and Terry Francona is as good as it gets to be around. So I guess I guess I'll go Cubs Indians, but. I don't know. I, I, I'm glad I left Ken some other options.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's it's well, not an easy one. Ken? I have the good fortune going second in this one.
2: Yankees, Red Sox aside, because that is always drama beyond belief, as we saw last week, I would go World Series rematch Astros-Dodgers. Hmm. Just to see those two teams on the field again going at each other. And I know they're somewhat different than they were. The Astros have Cole, and the Dodgers do not have Darvish, etc. But... There's a lot going on with those two clubs. They're very, very data-driven, and that alone makes it a different kind of experience. But both managers are great in that regard, too. As Jason said, you want quotable managers. Well, Dave Roberts and A.J. Hinch are pretty good. You've got Kershaw. You've got Verlander. So I'd go there. And, of course, you've got what happened in seven games last year, which was pretty rich. So that would be my choice.
0: I like that. By the way, guys, am I crazy to think that Otani – is has not gotten that story has not gotten enough national publicity at this point, given just how incredible it is, how multi generational it is.
1: I'm with you. This is one of the greatest sports stories of our lifetime. We like we've never seen anybody this talented play this sport. He throws a baseball a hundred miles an hour. He hits a baseball as hard as Aaron Judge. And he's one of the maybe dozen fastest players in the big leagues. What are we watching here? This is amazing.
2: I'm with Jason. He should be on the cover of Time magazine for me because this is so big. And I don't know where it's going. I don't know how successful he's going to be. He's certainly been successful so far. But just the idea of it, the fact that it's a Japanese player doing this, all of these elements, it's incredible. And – I can't get enough of it myself. And I, granted, I have a bias. I love baseball, but I just think to the average person, this can be presented in a way—a non-baseball fan. Hey, look at this! This guy can do both. Nobody does both. To me, it's amazing. And you're right. Not getting enough play.
0: I'm with you. I'm with you both. I think you guys—you uh, you sort of—you uh, explain that uh, better than I could. Ken Rosenthal is the senior mm-hmm. baseball writer. For The Athletic, he's also a regular contributor to Fox Sports as MLB telecast. He's an in-studio reporter for MLB Network. Jason Stark is a senior baseball writer at The Athletic. Um, You could also catch him in the studio at MLB Network. Uh, Guys, thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedules to do this. And, um, you know, on a personal note, it's great to just be part of what you guys do. You're both total professionals that I have immense respect for. And it's, it's just great to be on a staff where I see your byline. So thank you for joining uh, me on the sports media podcast.
1: Richard, right back at you. Thank you for inviting us.
2: Same Richard. Thanks a
1: lot.
0: All right. My thanks to Ken Rosenthal and Jason Stark for that excellent conversation. And now we move on to my next guest and it is Tim Layden, the longtime senior writer for sports illustrated. Uh, he's been a longtime friend of mine as well. And I wanted to bring him on to talk about William Knack and the passing of this incredible writer at age 77. Tim Layden wrote the tribute piece for William Knack this week that ran on Sports Illustrated's website. Tim Layden preceded William Knack on the horse racing beat. They had worked together. uh, They've spoken together at events. So there's really nobody better, in my opinion, to bring on. And Tim, first, thanks for joining me on this podcast. And I want to start with this, and it's really just an overview question. What made William Knack great?
3: Um, his passion. He never, uh, he never wanted to mail something in, Richard. He always, you know, everything he did. I'm sure if somebody wanted to go back to his whole archive, you could find a, you know, an 800 word scorecard item that maybe he dashed off quickly, but he didn't do it very often. Um, everything he did he wanted every piece of reporting to be thorough and he wanted every sentence to be as artfully constructed as he could and you know i think probably over the years a few times he was you know a little a few hours behind magazine deadline because he wanted the story to be perfect and he was he was a good old school tortured artist you know he wanted everything to be great and uh i think it showed and i think that You know, we're in an era now where there's a lot of emphasis on speed and and quantity. And uh, I think Bill's stuff will just get better as people look back at it.
0: Tim, could you, um, obviously you, you know, you weren't next to him when he was reporting something or you weren't next to him when he was in wherever he worked and wrote, but you probably had a sense of his process. Could you give me just a sense of the process of how he went about reporting and how he went about writing? I think
3: that, you know, I honestly, I don't think there was any magic to it with him. I, I think that's like, I think when you tunnel down to the bottom with all the really great journalists and storytellers, um, whether it's in sports or somewhere else, you're just going to find a guy who, I'll tell you what made, what what, what always fascinated me about Bill is that he, he sustained a high level of enthusiasm <clears throat> for, for his job and for whatever story he was working on. You know, he was a guy who wanted to, uh, you know, he he wanted to to spend a lot of time with a subject, you know, and maybe not as much as a Gary Smith, but but by by spending time with a subject, not so much in the presence of the actual person, but in his study or at his desk with the subject, um, just living with it and and reporting and reporting and reporting and trying to learn more and come up with, with, with nuggets. And I know a lot of this sounds like it's not, Novel when it comes to writing, but I think when you combine that with his unbelievable love of the English language, you know, I'm talking about a guy who memorized passages. Everybody knows about the Great Gatsby, but he memorized passages from lots of great literature that he would just in movies, you know, like all the President's Men, the you know the Haldeman op speech, you know. And he when you combine his reporting passion with his passion for the language and his unwillingness to let go of a subject. And, and let go of the story and just file it, you're going to get some pretty good work. And and I, I that's I think Bill just had all those pieces.
0: Tim, uh, I think it's clear that if, if there's one Knack piece that stands above the rest, it's his piece on June 4th, 1990, or that issue of Sports Illustrated, Pure Heart. And it's about Bill Knack's remembrance of Secretariat. But even more than that, it's about a guy, Bill Knack, in this case, sort of maybe looking back on his own life and realizing that, um, uh, you know, that his years are shorter uh, than they once were. Um, when you look at that piece, why has that, Why does that piece stand the test of time some, um, you know, 30-plus years later? And I'm sure 100 years from now, 200 years from now, this will be in all the anthologies of the best sports writing of the 20th century, the 21st century, et cetera.
3: Yeah. Isn't it amazing how, how that story has endured? You know, it's just um, it came up so often in the past few days when, when people were sending notes to me about the obituary I wrote or the remembrance. And, you know, I, I went back and read that whole story and I remember reading it when it came out. And, uh, you know, a lot of the stories that Bill tells in that story were in his secretariat book, obviously slightly different form. And he was even more polished as a writer when he did Pure Heart, than when he wrote uh, what was originally called Big Red of Metal Farm and became called Just Secretariat, um, and was made into a movie. Um, but he, that that one thing I think that story succeeds because so many people had this romantic relationship with Secretariat over the years. People who weren't even alive when Secretariat ran feel this this weepy attachment to that horse, and I think so the story succeeds on that level. And when I went back and read it this time, is really the first time that I came to understand the degree to which it's about a man, a middle-aged man. Bill was only 48 when he wrote it. Um, A middle-aged man remembering what his life was like. And I looked at an interview that Bill did um, a few years after that, and he, he talked about how that story was about a time in his life when he was happily married. He later got divorced, and he had four young children running around the house. And there was all this energy and happiness in his life, and he he just took that and, and transferred it to Secretariat and to that really what was the story of a lifetime for him. So I think it's a story that, that, that can succeed on multiple levels, depending on where you, as the reader, were coming from. And you know what a that's just an amazingly rare gift that you can basically write a, a remembrance of an athlete that's also the story about a, a grown person at a crossroads in his life and. Both in the same story. It's just I just really kind of like the perfect sports story in, in that way.
0: Tim, what's kind of amazing, and I only discovered this um, from reading a link of a conversation that you and Bill Knack had. I think you were doing it for a horse racing entity with Jim Mulvihill as the yeah, moderator. The horse racing symposium, yeah. Right, and what was amazing is, Sports Illustrated not only did not put that story as its cover story, it didn't even mention on the front of the issue that week that the story was in there. I'm looking at the cover; it's Lenny Dykstra who's hitting over 400 at the time with his chaw yep. and his jaw. Um, there's an Indy 500 cover line, and then there's the NBA showdown between the Bulls and Pistons. That is, I mean, I don't. To me, this is amazing to think about that arguably the greatest story in the history of the magazine that's all subjective but certainly one of them was not even built on the front in 1990
3: amazing i mean there's a few things that work there and some of them you're familiar with which is at that time si was just starting to to reference secondary stories on the cover um you know it's something that you know si's cover was pretty sacrosanct for a lot of years and there was one story on the cover and that was it and uh you know, it was just in the late 80s and 90s that S.I. started to, you know, put little postage stamps and flags on the top or bottom of the cover saying, here's what else might be inside. And then it wasn't until the 2000s when Terry McDonald, who had more of a, a men's magazine background, started putting writers' bylines on the cover. And that's something that Bill always regretted because he had so many great cover stories. He wishes that he had a few that he could have framed with his name on them. Um, But the other thing, you know, I also think, um, you know, Bill's relationship with the leadership of SI, I, I, in talking to Bill over the years, I'm not sure that he ever felt fully appreciated. You know, I think that he felt he sort of came, came in at the tail end of of Frank DeFord. I, you know, he didn't overlap with Dan Jenkins, Um, you know, and he, there were so many great writers at the magazine and, so often Bill isn't mentioned with some of those when clearly he should be. He's as good as anybody who ever wrote for Sports Illustrated. And I think Bill felt that a lot of the really great stories he did, you know, that's not the only great story he did that wasn't on the cover. I, Sonny Liston wasn't on the cover. Rick patino wasn't on the cover. Maybe Patino was. Sonny Liston was not. Um, you know, Big Daddy Lipscomb was not. Right. One of these historical pieces. and. I think maybe the leadership of SI at that time had a hard time knowing what to do with Bill's stories. Um, you know, that they just, they were in a, it would be easy to know what to do with them now. We're in a different time. But at that time, he was the only guy doing those kind of stories.
0: Yeah, Tim, that's well said. It's very inside baseball, obviously. But by the way, the Bobby Fisher story was not on the cover. Yeah, I'm looking yeah, at Bobby Mary
3: Davis. M- Robbie Davis was not on the cover. Right,
0: Mary Decker, I believe, was on the cover for the searching for Bobby Fisher story. Um, yeah, and you, you, you know, I had obviously I sort of came in at the um, near the tail end of uh, of Knack's time at SI, but I think he's right. I, I think he was not appreciated by the editors at the time, and maybe because the editors at the time were so enthralled with those who were there, like Deford or Dan Jenkins or Curry Kirkpatrick, etc. But I think they, uh, just to be blunt, I think they missed here. I think, first of all, I think Bill Knack is the greatest writer in the history of Sports Illustrated. It's obviously subjective, but that's my opinion. But I think Knack had a, you know, a lot of writers will complain. But I think in this case, I think he had a real legitimate complaint. And I'm not sure what it was. Maybe he wasn't as self-promotional as uh, the DeFords at the time. Or maybe it was because he did horse racing or some other oddity sports compared to the, you know, baseball, football. But it was something. Because he wasn't. You know, when you thought of, like, the the all-timers who really were promoted at the time, the Rileys, the DeFords, etc., you're right. You didn't hear Gary Bill Knack, yeah. Gary Smith. It yeah. just, Bill Knack, yeah. he, he he was part of the depth, but you never, he didn't seem to be pushed front and center by SI the brand, which is very puzzling. I, you're right, in 2018, where you just saw all these remembrances of him and people were, you know, he, he wrote stories that clearly just people never forgot 20, 25, 30 years later.
3: Well, I don't think there's any doubt that Bill's reputation and again, we live in a bubble. I'm talking a lot to other journalists, but, but people outside that bubble too. I think Bill's reputation has gotten better since the day he left Sports Illustrated as people also the, the whole long form narrative storytelling uh genre has grown tremendously and I think people trying to do that kind of work look back and now they see Bill's stories and say, you know, wow, man, this guy could really bring it. And and I, you know, but at the time, you know, I, clearly SI had, uh, you know, the leadership of the magazine had a great infatuation with Gary. Gary's was great, and and Deford obviously was great. And I, somehow I think Bill got a little lost in the shuffle there. Um, you know, see in a way. And, and look, I'm not uh, totally not comparing myself to Bill Mack, but the one thing I'll say is that I've had the experience of being a guy trying to be a long-form writer at SI who also has beat obligations. And somehow I think you know, maybe that made people look at Bill and say, well, you know, he's the horse racing writer. Mm. You know, he's the, you know, he, and, and he's, and, and Bill could be a little quirky. We're all quirky, but, you know, we all know that, you know, in an office and in a media company, there are always those people who manage to navigate the hallways a little better than others. And I'm not sure that was Bill's best thing. Hmm. You know, Bill's those, those best thing was reporting and writing. It wasn't, uh, although he's a world-class schmoozer with his peers and people he was covering, um, a tremendous presence in a social setting. I'm not sure that transferred well to his schmoozing with the people that were paying him at all times. Because I know from talking to him, he always felt a little underappreciated. We all feel underappreciated. I felt Bill had a little more, uh, a better case than
0: some of us. Um how intimidating was it to follow Bill Knack? You feel a little like uh, Jimmy Carson in Edmonton following Gretzky. <laughs>
3: um, I never tried to be, but, you know. I always tell one of the stories I tell people when I do speeches is that you know I I followed Bill Knack on the horse racing and Kenny Moore on the track and field <laughs> at FI, and uh, you know those are probably the two best journalists in those sports in history. Um, so I I I, I never. I told Rich O'Brien, who's a, a former SI editor and writer that you and I both know that, you know, I, it took me about five years to get Kenny's voice out of my head when I was writing track stories and not to mimic his style anymore. And I wasn't really mimicking it, but I could always hear, you know, how he might have done this story. And by the time I took over horse racing, I'd kind of gotten a little more mature as a writer. And I felt, I felt pretty comfortable in my own skin at that point. And, uh I just made peace with the fact that people were going to ask about Bill and people were going to, Never compare me me to Bill but talk about how great Bill was and, and and I think Bill was great too, so I've never had a problem with that. And uh but I have enough uh self assurance that I'm I'm comfortable doing my own work and comfortable that it's good enough and uh if people want to ever compare it to Bill's, I'm just gonna go in another room.
0: It's um it's very clear yeah. that Knack had a love of horse racing and that's one of the reasons he wanted to write it. This goes back to his childhood, Timmy. He he was around horses when he was young.
3: Yeah, he um his and I never knew this until gosh a year or two ago talking to Bill, um, and he his he wound up working around the stalls and helping with horses with from with a neighbor's family in in Skokie, Illinois, uh, who had horses just like uh, pets, you know, to ride recreationally. They weren't racehorses, and that's how Bill um, and and then the next stage was a teenager, Bill's dad liked to go to the racetracks around Chicago, Hawthorne park, Arlington park, Washington park. There were a lot of, there were three or four major tracks in that area at the time. And Bill would go there with his dad and just, just develop a love for, for racing that way. You know, he, uh, tells a story of meeting the 1955 Kentucky Derby winner swaps at the track and how swaps came over and licked his hand one day. And when Bill tells the story, it reduces the room of horse lovers to tears. And, uh, but and be, not because not only because of its truth, but because of its sincerity. Um, and then Bill had a twenty-year gap in his life where he didn't write about horses, and until so he got the horse racing gig at Newsday in the uh, early seventies.
0: Between, um, you know, we we talked a little bit about his piece on Secretariat. Obviously, he wrote um, the War of Words between Ali and Frazier. The um, you know, the sort of you know, the yeah, sunny. That was a great
3: story that I forgot about.
0: Yeah, Sunny Liston piece. Yeah. Is there um, if you want to eliminate Pure Heart, is there a piece to you that really stands out above some of the other knack pieces uh, uh, outside of horse racing, which obviously he was a a master writer on.
3: You know, the the sunny Liston piece was, I think, his best. Um, you know, that was his boxer and the blonde Frank Deford's great piece about Billy Kahn. That was Knack's boxer in the blonde, his remembrance of Sonny Liston, who had been out of the game just long enough by then that nobody really remembered him except as a secondary character in the Ali fights. And it was a tremendous look into a, into a really tragic life. And uh, so that was my favorite, you know, boxing story and sort of profile historical piece. And th- this is weird, but for me, um, this, no one's going to think of this as one of the great Knack stories, but he wrote a piece, it was a year-end piece in 1982, which, again, he told me he had to fight like heck to get into the magazine, um, and it was about, wasn't about the horse, but the horse that was at the centerpiece of the story was named Conquistador Cielo, who won the Belmont Stakes in the Metropolitan Mile, 1982, got a whole bunch of very wealthy people really excited, and they sunk a whole bunch of money into Conquistador Cielo's stallion career, and then he lost to Travers, and it turns out he wasn't what he was cracked up to be, and the story is a Five thousand word deep dive into the world of, of money and, and what a huge gamble it is to bet that a horse is going to produce other good horses as a stallion and uh, I was just starting to cover a little bit of horse racing and that just opened up a whole world of storytelling and reporting and and inside knowledge about the world that that sport exists in and uh, I just thought it was a it just it, really, it was a it was a game changing read for me. You know, when I was, I was 25 years old at the time and, uh, I just thought this is a world, I'm going to do a little horse racing for the rest of my life, which I didn't for a lot of years and then I have since then. I'd like to tell stories like this. And, and I also thought that Bill, Bill's style matched up with my own. You know, I, I'd, I'd been reading SI and I thought, I'm not going to be able to write like Kirkpatrick, Kirk that, that, that rat-a-tat-a-tat, you know, Borscht Belt stuff. Like I'm not, you know, but, but you know, Bill was a guy that I thought I could aspire to in terms of style. Now, DeFord was, too, but there was something about Bill, you know, that just, you know. And then I followed him at Newsday and followed him at SI, and uh, I'll follow him until I'm done, I'm sure.
0: Did you ever work together on a story? Did you ever just either combine bylines or combine reporting <clears throat> forces?
3: Never did. Wow. You know, um, it, uh, yeah, our, our roles at the magazine were different in the... Bill's last five or six years, I was the college football beat writer for SI, and just started doing some features on other things. And Bill was a you know long form back in the magazine writer, but I knew him through horse racing. Um, you know, he had been when I had been at Newsday and in, in the Albany area, but uh, but we never worked together. We did talk about stories at various times. Once I was covering horse racing, and Bill was retired, and we would run into each other at the track. But yeah, I would have loved to have worked with him once.
0: How? Um what where as far as you know what, what what was his satisfaction level professionally when he left sports illustrated and then went on to work for espn for a number of years he um i know he was part of the secretariat movie um so that probably was a nice payday but uh, you know maybe that was satisfying as well what do you know about his post uh, his post si work um i'll take
3: the last thing first i, I was um through a weird confluence of events i wanted to be in a uh, having a small role in the secretariat movie so i got i did dick girardi of the philadelphia daily news and jay pridman of uh of esp of uh, daily racing forum we all got to go to the premiere and bill was there <clears throat> they, they bought bill's book and used it as a resource and bill was a uh either a consultant or executive producer i'm not sure what his title was but the night of the premiere in hollywood bill was there and it was Bill was so much in his element. He was walking around, he was telling stories to everybody from the production crew to the PR people to Diane Lane and John Malkovich, and I've never I've never seen Bill, again, people know Bill better than I do, and I've known him longer than I did, but in my experience with Bill, I never saw him so loose and happy and, and proud that this lifelong project of his had sort of made it all the way to a Hollywood movie, which is sort of the... That's the end of the story of Secretariat. Um, Bill leaving SI and his career satisfaction after that. I mean, I, um, you know, all the knowledge I have about his separation from SI was secondhand, but it wasn't entirely pleasant. Um, Bill didn't simply retire and say, I've had enough. There was some uh, tension between him and the, uh, and management at the time and, whether he was encouraged to leave um, because that's, it was the first time SI laid people off, mm. which has happened many times since, but that was the first time and, uh, and, and bought people out. Cause I, I don't, uh, Bill was bought out, not laid off. Um, and how, and I, I, you know, again, I think he did several good pieces. He won an eclipse award for a story in GQ. Then two years later, um, wrote plenty of good stuff for ESPN. Uh, I, I don't know that I never heard Bill say that he wished he was doing more that he wished he could still be writing in my, the times that I saw him during his retirement, he seemed very happy. Um, he was remarried, a great relationship with his kids. Um, you know, again, his whole time at SI, I think, I think he was very proud of his work and always really wondered if he was appreciated quite enough. And I, I'm sure that carried over a little bit. He would occasionally a little bit of bitterness would come out, but you know, I, He's proud of his work, and and I think he understood by the end how much people respected his work because he started to connect with some younger writers. He sent autographed copies of his memoir to uh, Bright Thompson and Seth Wickersham within the last year or so, unsolicited, um, with a a compliment to their work and appreciation that they liked his. And I think he started to connect with people and understand his legacy a little better um, in the latter few years of his life and let go of a little bit of that angst and frustration that may have attended his his time at SI.
0: I mean, this is total Monday morning quarterbacking uh, by me and perhaps by us, but if you look at it, if you look at that today, the idea that (laughs) management would let William Knack go or would not do anything in their power to keep that guy riding just seems preposterous. And again, I'm Monday morning quarterbacking it however many years later, but it just it's unbelievable you just as a general rule if you're management in any industry you keep you keep your premier talent so that's amazing that they let him walk out the door
3: yeah i don't know all the details um but i sure any unless bill um walked into the managing editor's office or the publisher's office and said i want out then it's hard to imagine but also you know, in the years since then, Richard, we've seen a lot of very good people lose their jobs. Correct. And you wonder how those people could possibly lose their jobs, and the message is that anybody can lose their job, no matter how good they are, and even if it's a mistake, it can happen. Um, you know, and you look back at SI in 2001. You know, Bill and Lee Montville left, and uh, those are not those are two of the most you know, towering voices in sports journalism in in our lifetime and other lifetimes as well. Uh, but people like Gary Smith and Jack McCallum and Rick Hoffer and Rick Riley and Steve Russian were all left behind, and I'm sure that the whoever was making the decisions at SI at that time, for whatever reason Bill was allowed to leave or was encouraged to leave, whatever happened, they could look down the bench and say we're in pretty good shape. And you know, I'm not saying that that makes it right. Um, I'm just saying that it was a different time, and we've seen a lot of good people lose their jobs in the years since then. And and at the time, SI was loaded with great people. Um, it's not an answer, but it's a little bit of it's uh, a little bit of thought on it.
0: Yeah, and I appreciate. All the, I can say I appreciate the perspective, and it's it's, it's sort of well said there, even through frustration. Um, all right, let's finish up on this, Tim, and let's finish up on Sports Illustrated. As everybody listening to this podcast knows, um, you know I worked there for many, many years and recently left to go to the athletic. Um, as I wrote, it was an, an excruciating decision, and Tim Layden knows that because Tim Layden's somebody I called many times on it before I made my final decision. Tim, um, Sports Illustrated was part of Time Inc. Time Inc. was sold to the Meredith Corporation- a number of months ago, a publisher in Des Moines, Iowa, that um, is successful, but has been successful with a certain kind of magazine, and that's either women's magazines or service magazines. Meredith has said that they are selling Sports Illustrated. Looks like they're also going to sell Time Magazine, uh, Fortune, a couple of the other very famous Time Inc. titles. And now the question is, where who will buy Sports Illustrated and what kind of steward will Sports Illustrated get? You are still at Sports Illustrated, Tim. And I wonder just how you look at all this in terms of the landscape, because it it seems like, you know, in the end, there's really two possibilities. One possibility is Sports Illustrated gets a great steward, someone who cares about the magazine, someone who understands the DNA of the magazine, throws resources to it, and tries to make a go of it in the 21st century. The other possibility, and this is obviously a horrible one to think about, is you know you get like uh, an owner in the way like the Denver Post and some of these other newspapers have gotten owners where they just tried to bleed all the resources that they can, collect as much money as they can, and eventually they grind the, pub- the, they grind the brand or the publication down to the ground. Um, what is it like right now for you in terms of where, where this may or may not be going?
3: Okay, I'm speaking only for myself here. You know that, but I feel yep. I feel, uh, I feel uh, it's necessary to say that. Um, I've been at SI for 24 years. I'm the oldest writer on the masthead and um, close to the longest tenure. I'm thinking. I'm not sure who's been there longer. Scott Price and I came in together. Um, you know, it, but I'll, I'm not. I understand the climate around my profession. I'm not under any delusion that SI um, deserves or is guaranteed a life beyond tomorrow. Um, I know that um, I know that we can go out of business under various possible scenarios. And I, we are owed nothing by the public or by um, by the industry at the same time. I am um, incredibly frustrated by the drumbeat of stories that insist that SI's time has passed and that, that were nothing but a former um, weekly magazine that children of the 60s and 70s and 80s look forward to running out to their mailbox. I'm tired of hearing that scenario because SI has still has a staff and management um, that are as good as any in the journal- sports journalism business. Uh, the quality of the work we do is still extremely high level, um, really as high as it's ever been. Um, so just with those two things as forethought, um, obviously I hope for the former scenario where someone sees that talent that I'm describing and finds a way to, to monetize us and, and that it's someone with deep enough pockets to, to tell us to do, keep doing what you do best, but also someone who can maybe – Hire somebody who's, uh, you know, bring, in, bring along someone who has really novel ideas to how we can do what we do best and also make a profit at it. Make enough of a profit that someone wants to own us and let us do those things. So I'm not sure every business decision that my company has made in the last 20 years has been in the best interests of what we do best. And I would love to see someone come in and look at us from that perspective, what do you do best? How do we monetize what you do best? Um, whether that person is out there or not, I, I have no idea right now. Um, but that's what I hope for. I'm near the end of my career, but I, I feel for the younger uh, colleagues of mine that have tuitions and mortgages and long lives ahead of them and, uh, long careers ahead of them and they're good. And, um, I, I just hope that we can find somebody who, uh, who can rescue us in that way, and and not for charity. Rescue us because we're good and and find a way to make that good profitable and, and long-lasting.
0: Tim, one last one for me, and that is—and um, again, I'm not sure how much of this piece traveled outside of sports journalism circles, but The Ringer ran a piece by Michael McCambridge, who is the author of uh, essentially an oral—not uh, an oral history, but essentially a biography of Sports Illustrated, a well-known one— and he wrote a piece um, that, I don't really, I, you know, I, I'm more, forget about how I feel about it. I'm more curious how you read it, because in some situations, some might have read it as an obit. In other situations, some might have read it as a love letter, or maybe it was a combination of the two. How did you read McCambridge's long piece on The Ringer on Sports Illustrated?
3: Yeah, I, I, I actually had a conversation with Michael about it after he wrote it, um, which I won't share all of that, but I'll, it was too much of a remembrance and too much of an obituary. And, uh, again, it falls into the category, you know, as one of my colleagues sent me a note and said, you know, it's, it's really cool that Bud Shrake picked up Muhammad Ali at the airport and drove him around and got a great story out of it, but it doesn't have much to do with the present situation. And I don't understand it made for it made for nice reading for people that remember SI of a certain era, but we haven't been that for a long time. Right. But we've been doing what we do well, and I just I I felt the story was just you know again Michael does have a great love for what Sports Illustrator was when he was a young boy, but I don't know that that's um, relevant to what SI is now, and in a good way, and and what we can continue to be. Um, sort of at the bottom of the story, he got into talking more about who the good writers are that we have and, and what good content we do provide and what good things we've done. But it all came much too late and the tone of the story had already been established. And, uh, you know, I just thought that a little bit of that could have gone higher in the story. And, and, uh, you know, again, the story, is this the end of sports illustrated? I think it was titled and tagged on social media and such. And, you know, obviously that's very sexy, but it's, it's, it's been done before. And we're still here. And we're still doing tremendous work. And um, I think if given the right opportunity and the right kind of management, which we haven't had in a long time, and I'm not talking about my immediate above-the-masthead bosses at at SI. I'm talking about people well above that. Um, We haven't had good management in a long time. And um, with good management and good support, um, we're as good as anybody. And I wish that those kind of stories, the Cambridges and others, would reflect that or fairly, when instead of taking the cheap shot at a big target that, that's pretty easy to take.
0: That's uh, well said. Tim Layden is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. Um, he is, in my opinion, the best horse racing writer of uh, his generation, William Knack, his generation before that. Um, he's been a longtime colleague and a longtime friend. And uh, Tim, I'm, I'm really appreciative that you came on today to talk a little bit about William Knack, who obviously meant um, so much to you, meant a lot to me, meant really a lot to anybody who came in contact with him or his work. Uh, I'm sure I will be talking to you offline soon enough. But uh, thank you very much for uh, coming on the uh, sports media podcast and talking about Bill Knack.
3: Okay, thanks, Richard. Good luck to you.
0: All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Ken Rosenthal, to Jason Stark, and to Tim Layden. Uh, Two really interesting conversations, Uh, three ultra professional people in the sports media business. Lou, I actually don't know this. How big, are you a big baseball fan? Yeah. I know you're a huge hockey fan. Yeah. Is that right? Oh yeah. big What baseball is your team? Do you I'm, know? A, I'm a Mets fan.
4: No, oh, so you should be psyched. Yeah. it's an You know what though? But I'm also one of these realist fans. <laughs> right. You know, I've, I've talked about this with friends, uh, before. I'm a realist. Love the fact that their record stands at where it is right now.
0: Um, but it's a long season. Long season. Um, it was interesting. Um, I thought Stark was really honest about his layoff. That was actually really interesting to me just to listen to that. But it, it does sort of, again, um, say something about media in 2018 where Jason Stark gets laid off from a place that has a massive baseball contract. It just, it's almost yeah. unexplainable. It's yeah. not almost unexplainable. It, 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 it is unexplainable.
4: I think what you're starting to see more and more, Like I remember growing up, and I said this to somebody the other day in a conversation, we grew up in a time where, broadcasters were broadcasters they weren't former athletes very rarely I grew up as we talked about as a Met fan so I was very lucky in hearing Bob Murphy and Gary Thorne on the radio right two guys who as far as I know were not athletes never played a game in Major League Baseball and on TV you had Steve Zabriskie Tim McCarver former player Ralph Kiner former player but They were far enough removed, at least for me, from the game that I didn't know that they were players until your father, your grandfather, your uncle says, oh, they were really good baseball players. Ralph Kiner is going to be a Hall Hall of Famer, Famer, or he is a Hall of Famer, Famer. right? Well, at the time, I don't know if he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Maybe he was, but I'm just saying. And then you go on and you learn the history of these, these men who were players who just transitioned into the broadcast booth. Rusty Staub ended up joining them at some point. Tom Seaver then followed. And it was very rare. You may have had an analyst who was a former player. Now, every broadcast team has a former player as an analyst. And sometimes they even dip into the play-by-play role every once in a while as well. So now you see guys like Jason Stark get pushed out. Because as much as I love Jason's work, I'm looking at it from what the bigwigs may think. Well, do we want Jason Stark to give his inside baseball, or do we want... X player Y giving his thoughts on what's going on. Who's going to listen to who more? And I think we're transitioning into that, you know, and you hear it all the time. Well, if they didn't play the game, why do I want to hear from them? But Jason being such a great writer, I was shocked when when he was let go, and I'm glad that he's landed at the Athletic where a lot of people have landed. And, you know, it's funny when you see athletes and coaches lose jobs, you know they're going to get scooped up right away by another team or someone will pick them up maybe after, you know, a six-month layoff or what have you. Seeing all the writers that have been laid off and let go over the years or the last couple of months and seeing them all land on their feet and most of them landing at the athletic, it's it's really nice to see some of the people that I grew up watching and idolizing and craving their information all under one umbrella. And that's not a
0: advertisement for it either. It's just how I feel. Isn't the more important question? How's it going with Jimmy Tranella? It's great. All right, fantastic.
4: It's two different guys, but you know what? You're both my friends. I both enjoy both of you. All right. There's Thank no you. conflict of interest Thank here. Thank you,
0: Boutros, Boutros Galley. <laughs> um, all right, my thanks to Jason Stark and Ken Rosenthal. Thank you to Tim Layden. Thanks to Lou Pellegrino for producing this podcast and Cadence 13 as well. Already have the guest booked for next week that is the legendary Vern Lundquist. Ah. Uh should be very exciting. I love uh, Uncle Vern. Yeah, he Uncle will come, Vern is the man. He'll come on and talk about his recent um, work at the Masters, and obviously we'll talk about Vern's uh, iconic career. So check that out next week for Lou Pellegrino. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.